Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Lending Tree is an online marketplace for borrowers and lenders. In 2021, the company did a study that analyzed the cost of raising a child in America. If you birth a baby and raise that boy or girl in a middle-class home through their 18th birthday, it will cost you $237,482. That is a quarter of a million dollars to get that kid through high school, which doesn't even include college expenses. In the state of Georgia, to provide a child food, shelter, clothing, child care, transportation, health insurance, other necessities, it costs a whopping $16,477 annually. That represents 15.5% of most household income. And for those keeping track, that's a 19% increase since 2016. The study does say, good news, that economies of scale help with the expense of having children. The more children in your family, the cost per individual child decreases. In other words, the more kids you have, the less they cost per child. Kids are like donuts, cheaper by the dozen. So if you're married and you and your spouse are thinking of Christmas presents for each other this year, here's your choice. You can raise a child or... Purchase a new Ferrari Roma, sleek style, lush interior, 3.9 liter turbocharged engine, 612 horsepower, goes from 0 to 60 in 3.1 seconds. Both the child and the car will cost you just about the same amount of money. And yet the emphasis on the promised child in Isaiah 9 is not on what he will cost us, but on the value that he will bring us. Here's a child, a son, whose shoulders are broad enough to carry all the responsibilities of government. Embedded in his name are possibilities galore. What kind of a baby gets referred to as wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace? This child, this son, will sit on the throne of David. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Both those phrases, by the way, are biblical clues, Jewish code, you might say, that would have alerted Isaiah's readers to familiar promises. This was no ordinary child. This was no random son. This child will fulfill God's promises to the Davidic dynasty. He'll be the root that grows from David's family tree, the forever king who will rule over a forever kingdom. 
all the Hebrew kings were anointed with olive oil. But one king was to be the anointed of the anointed. He would be drenched with the spiritual oil of the Holy Spirit. And thus, this king was given a special name, the anointed one. In Hebrew, it's the Messiah. In English, it's Christ. Think of it. There was a child in Israel's future who would save his people and bless his people and be great among his people. In essence, here's a child who grows up to take care of the family that bore him. Generations to come will stand upon his shoulders. I mean, this is like the football player who gets drafted and signs a big contract and immediately buys a home for his mama. Or the child who builds a business and employs all the family members. Or the son who lands a job at Augusta National and invites his dad to go with him for a round of golf. I mean, rather than a drain, this son is a wondrous gift. Unlike the average child that costs his family a quarter of a million bucks, Messiah will be a blessing to the house of David and ultimately to the whole human race. The offspring of our text envisions that mankind, what mankind longs for, a child, a son, so great that he'll lift humanity from all ages over all continents onto his broad shoulders and orchestrate a wise, a kind, a just government and bring the world its much desired and long-awaited peace. And if you listen, you hear a yearning in Isaiah's voice, for unto us. Notice Isaiah takes this promise personally. He is our Messiah. Even more so, he is my Messiah. Harris Linowitz, a Jewish literary professor from the University of Utah, puts it this way, who at different times in their life hasn't had a belief That someone, a Messiah, can help them and help the world. The Messiah is the biggest answer to the biggest single question. Does God care about me? And I agree, if God really cares for us, then he'll send someone to save us. This messianic longing is a basic human instinct. In all the centuries, through all the atrocities, over all the highs and lows that combine to make Jewish history since Isaiah, still it hasn't tampered down the hope of a Messiah. Even today, among all men, the Messianic hope burns brightly. Twenty years ago, Jewish science fiction writer Jack Don was convinced that our cynical culture had abandoned its belief in a Messiah. But his views have now changed. He writes, I would have said that the idea of a messianic message was dying out in the popular culture, that it was being overtaken by a more sophisticated secularism. Obviously, I was mistaken. More and more people seem to be embracing the idea that a Messiah will appear to fix everything. People of all races and all cultures and all age groups, people the world over, long for a Savior. Every human heart whispers, For unto us. We all long for a Messiah who will fix everything for us. And in these two verses, verses 6 and 7, Isaiah unfolds Messiah's resume. 
and it is extensive from his birth to eternity, 700 years before that first Christmas, long before a virgin girl Mary got news she'd bear a son, seven centuries before she birthed that child and laid Jesus in a manger, the prophet penned this message. Isaiah 66 chapters contain numerous pictures of Jesus, but here is perhaps the most vivid, the most complete. Read this prophecy with unfiltered, unbiased eyes, and the Messiah Isaiah speaks of can be no one else. We have here a portrait of Jesus Christ in the scroll of Isaiah. And verse 6 describes Jesus' coming into the world to us in a couplet. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Notice first, God sent a person to be our Savior. Not an ideology, not a movement, not a revolution, but a person. Today, secular Jews have turned the hope of the Messiah into a mindset. It's progress and advancement rather than a man. Messianic thought, messianic ambition is a can-do attitude for all men. And yet this is not what Isaiah sees. Clearly, Messiah is to be an individual, a member of the human race, a man. And this is vital, for God could have sent a seraphim to be our Savior, or crowned a cherubim. Messiah could have been a type of angel, another worldly creature. Messiah didn't come from the angelic ranks. Instead, God insisted on a child, a son, one of us. In fact, God could have sent a full-grown specimen of a man, like the first man, Adam, an adult from day one. Messiah could have come with muscles and street smarts and the wherewithal to protect himself, but not so. Isaiah predicts a child is born. God's anointed one, the redeemer of all mankind, entered a woman's virgin womb and planted himself on her uterine wall. He came as a child. He subjected himself to the birthing process and breastfeeding and potty training. And that first day of middle school, and chores and zits. As a child, he developed and learned, and grew. His feelings got hurt. His feet got tired. God blew his nose. He was just as human as you and I are human. From the outset of his reign, Jesus wanted us to be sure of his love, that he didn't just come to rule, but to care. For a child is more than just human. A child is the littlest, most vulnerable, the most dependent of humans. And this is how Jesus chose to come to us. He disarmed us with his humility. Rather than tower over us, he put himself on our level. Before he reigns, he first relates. Isn't it odd? We spend most of our passing life seeking just the opposite. To be big, to come off as invincible, to be dependent on no one else. Our lives are dominated by pride and defensiveness and self-sufficiency. But that's what Messiah came to save us from. Not just oppressive regimes, but from ourselves. He came to teach us the loving way, humility, 
and compassion and faith. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. For more than one of us, Messiah is also a gift to us. Jesus was born a child, but God is and has always been Father and Son. Thus Jesus was the Son of God before time began. When He, the Messiah, came to us, He wasn't just a child born. He was also a son given. In taking on humanity, He never lost His divinity. Messiah was God in the flesh, the perfect blend of undiluted deity and undistorted humanity, the God-man. Imagine for nine months, the creator of land and seas swam in Mary's amniotic fluid. When her water finally broke for the first time in all eternity, the creator of the universe had lungs to breathe in all that he had dreamed up. It was a monumental moment for God. I'm sure every angel in every corner of creation stopped in their tracks and gawked in stunned surprise. What is God doing? But on earth, there were very few who noticed. The event that sent heaven into shock was barely recognized on the fallen planet. Only a few shepherds and a faithful Joe realized that Mary's baby was Almighty God incognito. Not only had a child been born, but a son was now given. And even after Jesus had been around a while and had all grown up, even put his uniqueness on display, men on earth were still reluctant to see the truth about him. When Jesus began to buck their status quo and mock their stereotypes and run roughshod over their traditions, Messiah became a threat to their authority. For as Isaiah said, the government will be upon his shoulder. Jesus Christ came to govern, not to appease. The child born didn't just come to ease our pain. The son given has come to take the reins. From the beginning, Messiah's mission was to govern our lives. My first grandson was the only baby I've ever seen birthed with biceps. Colt has broad shoulders. He was ripped from the wound. I think his mom was on steroids. I don't know if baby Jesus had literal biceps and a stout upper body, but figuratively he did. For there has never been a baby born with broader shoulders. One day the government of the world will rest on these shoulders. Jesus will right all wrongs. He'll put an end to social injustices and financial inequities and racial prejudices. He'll end corruption in our courts and violence in our streets and chaos in our schools and hostility in our homes. There'll be no such thing as a bad cop when Jesus is on the beat. Some people believe it's up to the church to build a utopia or it's society's job to perfect or engineer a perfect world. Not so. We shouldn't flatter ourselves. Messiah won't need our help. Before Jesus slept in an earthly manger, he had sat on heaven's throne. He's used to being in charge. Jesus is king of heaven. The job of governing earth is not hard for him to shoulder. Messiah is not afraid of serious and critical choices. He's qualified for this role. 
While on earth, there were those who tried to make Jesus king, but he refused them. He came the first time to establish a spiritual, not a political kingdom. He came not to reign over institutions, but to rule in men's hearts. And this is what he continues to do to this day. And he's made it our job to help him in this, to love and disarm and serve our way into the human hearts around us and to bring to them his grace and truth. But one day Jesus will return. Sure as shooting, friends, he's coming back. He is still the same God of love and mercy that we've come to expect, but along with his merciful heart, he will rule with a strong hand. The Bible says a rod of iron. He'll deal with those who resist and rebel to ensure a peace and prosperity for those who put their trust in him. Isaiah here continues in verse 6, and his name, his name. That first Christmas, the angel told Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus. Yet Isaiah here informs us that he'll be known by five more monikers, wonderful, counselor, mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Which brings up one of my pet peeves. It really rubs me wrong. When it came time to name their firstborn, my mom and dad canvassed all the possible names. I'm sure they did. I'm sure they gave this some thought. They could have chosen Ace or Duke or Bart or Thor or Max, or Rocky, some strong, masculine-sounding name. Instead, they named me Sandy. I got named after a granular substance. Imagine getting named after beach erosion. Shifty Shaky is my namesake. Sand is what gets in your swimsuit that irritates your skin. Hey, my name is Irritant. How do you do? Well, maybe that's more fitting than I thought. But I love Jesus' names here. These are name tags with a message. Jesus couldn't have five more fitting names. Isaiah says of Messiah, King Jesus, his name will be called Wonderful. There is nothing ordinary or run-of-the-mill, let alone boring and dull, about Jesus. He was and is truly wonderful. In every way. Realize in your Bible the word wonderful is never once used of anything that man is or that man does or that man has made. It's a word reserved for God. It's a heavenly, God-like, might we say, magical quality that spices up our lives. When I sense Jesus' presence, when I experience his peace in a tough time, He brings a wonder to my life. I sense that somehow my life matters beyond time and space. Jesus sprinkles touches of eternity into my daily routine. It's amazing. Life lived with Jesus is truly a wonderful life. See, here's our Messiah. More light than we can learn. More wealth than we can treasure. More love than we can earn. More peace than we can measure. Because one child is born, and thus we call him Wonderful. And Jesus is the counselor. 
He's the counselor I and you desperately need. Some Bible scholars put these two words into a single phrase, wonderful counselor. That's fine with me, for he is that. Jesus is our wonderful counselor in a world teeming with false and foolish ideas and advice. You know, I read an interesting tabulation. Today, our society boasts of 77,000 clinical psychologists, 192,000 clinical social workers, 105,000 mental health counselors, 50,000 marriage and family therapists, 17,000 nurse psychotherapists, 30,000 life coaches, and hundreds of thousands of non-clinical social workers and substance abuse counselors. Since 1950, there's been a 100-fold increase in mental health workers in America. But are we healthier? More sane and less tortured? Despite the increase in helpers, we're not. I heard it put, a counselor is someone who helps you organize your hang-ups so you can be unhappy more efficiently. That's a joke for sure. I do want to thank the many caring professionals who offer hurting folks valuable help. There are some good, wise counselors out there. But there's something wrong when a surplus of help still doesn't put a dent in our problem. We need Jesus, a wonderful counselor. He is the expert. We need his truth, his forgiveness to set us free, his love to make our lives worthwhile. We need Jesus to point us to God and cleanse our sin and break our destructive habits and overcome our inadequacies and mend our brokenness and help us sort out the details of our lives. You know, it's interesting, mankind fell into sin because we listened to the wrong counselor. We followed the advice of the serpent. We were ruined by a counselor, but we are now saved and restored by a counselor, a wonderful counselor. His wisdom is higher than our wisdom. It's divine, not earthly wisdom. Actually, the wisdom of God is foolishness to man. It goes against the grain, against conventional wisdom. He only asks that we trust him. And then we're told Messiah is the mighty God. In Hebrew, it's El Gibor, the hero God, the warrior God. Messiah has and will defend his righteousness. He's not afraid to flex his muscle and fight with and for his people. God wins victories for those who trust him. And today our society is desperate for heroes. Heroes exemplify courage. Heroes are champions of justice. They help us define our ideals and they provide us hope. Yet in the book, The Day America Told the Truth, its authors report that 70% of Americans say they have no living heroes. Where have all our heroes gone? A few years ago on an episode of Family Feud, host Steve Garvey, he asked the question, when someone mentions the king, to whom might they be referring? Well, of the 100 people surveyed, here were their answers. 81 said Elvis Presley. Three people, Martin Luther King Jr. Two people said the Burger King. Amazingly, only seven people said God or Jesus Christ. Now, I hope your king, your role model, your hero in life isn't Elvis Presley. He ain't nothing but a hound dog, said it himself. 
And as noble as Dr. King was, he had his flaws. And the Burger King, he even plays second fiddle to Ronald McDonald. He can't be your hero. If you don't have a hero, let me point you to Isaiah's anointed one. The Son of God has vanquished armies and walked on water and cast out demons and defeated the devil himself, then triumphed over sin and death and hell and the grave. Hey, let me introduce you to my hero. His name is Jesus. He is the mighty God. Again, when Jesus came as a man and took on humanity, nothing happened to diminish his deity. Jesus maintained his superpowers, but he laid them aside to live and die in our place. One day, Messiah will return to this fallen planet to crush the rebellion that's brewing even today. He'll be armed and dangerous then. The mighty God will again come wielding his mightiness and his fearlessness. But in my heart of hearts, Jesus' most heroic act will still be the 30-plus years when love drove him to be humble, when love drove him to the cross, when Jesus laid it all aside to take our side and to atone for our sin. That's why the mighty God will always be my hero. And Messiah is also named Everlasting Father. In the Gospels, Jesus did nothing to downplay this name. Numerous times, he claimed to be one with the Father. On occasion, he referred to himself as I Am, the name the true God gave to Moses from the burning bush. In John 10, verse 30, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. Here, it's no surprise, Messiah is called Everlasting Father. A son given is also the eternal father. And the emphasis here is that Messiah acts like a father. He is a watchful, patient dad to his people. You know, a good dad realizes that his kids are a work in progress. He invests in their training and he loves them despite their flaws and failures. And this is the heart of Jesus. And this will be his heart forever and ever. In fact, the only way a child can disappoint such a dad is to reject his forgiveness or to stonewall his love. And then fifthly, Messiah is called Prince of Peace. I once read that in the last 4,000 years of history, only 268 years have been lived in peace out of the last 4,000. And in that time, over 8,000 peace treaties have been made and broken. The world we live in today is overflowing with war. Did you know that today there are currently 32 conflicts around the globe affecting over 2, million, 2 billion people? From the latest war in Gaza to the fighting in Ukraine to the civil wars that rage today in Myanmar and Ethiopia and Yemen to the drug war that continues south of our border in Mexico to the mob rule that has created desperation in Haiti to the unrest that even flares up regularly on our own city streets. Our world today overflows with violence. Reminds me of the little boy who was doing a history report. He asked his dad, he said, Dad, why did, why did wars start? His dad replied, well, it varies, son. Take World War I, for example. It started when Germany invaded Belgium. His wife was nearby and she overheard the answer. She corrected him. She said, why don't you tell the boy the truth? It began when someone was murdered. 
Dad snapped back. He said, were you being asked the question or was I? His wife got angry. She stomped out the door, slammed it behind her. After an awkward silence, the little boy said, it's okay, Dad. You don't have to tell me anymore. I now know why wars start. The reason there is unrest among men is because there is unrest within man. Sin makes us selfish and angry and jealous and greedy and proud. And only Jesus has the antidote. We desperately need peace. Our problem is is that we seek it without its prince. Messiah alone can spread seeds of love and spiritual rest. Jesus is our peace. And that's why the angels announced to the shepherds that first Christmas, on earth peace, goodwill toward men. One day the Prince of Peace will bring peace to the, to the earth. But today he first brings peace to our hearts. Well, the Messiah's resume ends here with a drum roll, with a fanfare. Isaiah states, And of the increase of his government and peace, There will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. Understand, friends, history isn't a crapshoot. All of history is barreling toward an appointed end. Messiah's kingdom is growing today spiritually under the surface. But when Jesus returns, his throne will be established on earth and will mark the beginning of a divine order of justice and healing and restoration. All of humanity, all that humanity has been hoping for since the first sin entered the world in the Garden of Eden will be realized under the reign of our Lord Jesus. Tomorrow we celebrate the birth of a child and the gift of a son, a royal one at that. And his government will grow and bring about an everlasting peace to this troubled planet. And he'll have no term limits. No one will want them. We'll rejoice that his kingdom is forever. And if there is a doubter in the crowd today, Isaiah closes with these words. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. When it comes to our salvation and the restoration of our broken world, trust me, God will get her done. His zeal will see to it. Though he's been patient with our failings for eons and ages, there is a fire in God to bring all this to a close, to redeem the stolen and to heal the broken and to reorder the chaos around us. God will see to it that Messiah comes again and fixes everything for us. For he's already done it once. He proved his ability to do above what we could ask or think. Over 2,000 years ago, a child was born, a son was given. In February 1809, a conversation took place outside a little town in Kentucky. One man, he asked his friend, he said, any news down to the village, Esri? Esri answered, well, McLean, he went to Washington to see Madison sworn in, and old Spellman, he tells me Bonaparte has captured most of Spain. What's new with you? The other fellow replied, nothing, nothing at all. 
except for a new baby born to Tom Lincoln. Nothing ever happens out here. Of course, the baby he mentioned was Abraham Lincoln, who grew to be one of our greatest presidents. But there was nothing special about him at first. And how similar to that first Christmas. Nothing at all ever happens in Bethlehem. And yet a child was born. A son was given. Messiah, rightful ruler of David's throne. The anointed of God had come. His shoulders are broad enough to rule forever and bring about the world's long-awaited peace. Call him wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father. Call him Prince of Peace. Call him Jesus and receive him into your heart today, this Christmas. Let the Prince of Peace rule over you and give your soul.